I think if you have a good management system and good team and, and everything in place, then um, stay ahead of this. I think what COVID-19 is really doing is exposing bad systems. All I want is the nice stuff now. I want A and B class areas. We don't do luxury unless we can buy it at a deep discount, but that's very hard to find. Here's the thing, everybody wants these grand slam deals. And what they need to understand is you don't get grand slams without having a lot of at-bats. That's really the game, is getting to that fund side of things. Get a billion dollar fund and we'll do both debt and equity. The debt creates cash flow right now, the equity creates wealth over time. And I think we can balance that out. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Tim, welcome to Investor Creator. Hey, Brad. Excited to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. So I just want to jump into the state of the market. So I'm not a multifamily guy, and everybody knows I'm not a multifamily guy. And everybody knows you as like, you've kind of had this meteoric rise in the multifamily space the, the past four or five years. And so what's your thoughts on the market right now and its impact in the multifamily world? Um, all right. So I can tell you, I don't like speaking from theory, right? I think that's a bunch of nonsense and BS. And I don't like it when people speak from theory. I like when people speak from actual, what have they seen and what are they experiencing? I, what I can tell you is about two to 3% of our tenants are on workout plans from the whole COVID-19, lost their job, all that kind of stuff. Now we were very proactive in that whole process in helping our tenants, you know, like reaching out to people, letting them know if you're in a, a tight spot and you need some sort of financial support. Here's some different subsidy organizations. Here's some local churches. Here's some how to apply for unemployment, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of hit it before it hit us. Mm -hmm. And um, we still have about two to 3% of our tenants on workout plans. So that's kind of what we're going through. I can tell you that we actually um, collected more in rents in April than we did in March. And we collected more in rents in May than we did in April. And we're actually ahead of the curve in June as well. So some of that is lease up. So you can't totally say it's all because of uh, who's paying and who's not paying, but we don't have a lot in delinquencies right now. So I can tell you that I think if you have a good management system and good team and, and everything in place, then um, stay ahead of this. I think what COVID-19 is really doing is exposing bad systems, bad operators, bad things that are in the marketplace and really either helping people refine or exposing that, right? I mean, we've definitely gotten much better and we've been working our tail off and making sure that our properties maintain to you know continue to perform. We don't have any workout plans with our banks or anything like that. We've been able to pay all of our mortgage, all of our investors. We've never missed any of that stuff. So that's what I can tell you from what I've experienced through this whole thing. Obviously, every day is like there, there was there's a span there for what three, four, five weeks where something changed every single day with policy and economics and politics and everything. And so you just stay ahead of it, right? And that's what's really important to 
jump on podcasts like yours and make sure that you're getting this type of information. So that way you're not, you know, reacting, you're more proacting to what's going on. So that's kind of what I've seen over the past 90 days. As far as, you know, where are we going? I don't think anybody can speculate that. I think you see some of these people who are like economists and saying where the market's going to go. Dude, they would have all been wrong 120 days ago, right? Whatever their projections were for 2020. So listen to them today. You know, it's like a meteorologist. They're right 50% of the time. It might rain, it might not, right? So for me, I don't like to speculate on what might happen. I just look for good deals, man. You know, I'm still going to do good deals. I got involved in real estate 2005, started investing in 2009 when the market was down. So 05, it's up. 09, it's down. I start investing. And then, you know, had a lot of success over the past four or five years when the market's been back up again. And, um, and so I've seen it go kind of up and down. And I think everybody knows that markets are cyclical and they'll continue to go up and down. I know that there were good deals and bad deals a year ago. I know that there's going to be good deals and bad deals a year from now. And I know there's good deals and bad deals today. So as long as you have good sound business plan, business model, buying model, how you structure your projects, I think you can have success no matter what's going on with the marketplace. Yeah, and I 100% agree. I mean, one of the things that I think people have kind of gotten away from is, is the fundamentals. So it's like you look at any sports team, they're really great at the fundamentals. They're great at the jab. They're great at passing the ball or tackling, that kind of thing. And so it's really the same in business. Like if you can find deals, you're conservative, you don't over leverage those kinds of things, and you can weather almost anything. So tell me, when did you first get into the multifamily space? Because you started off in single family, correct? Yeah, I'm a single family guy early on. So I um, got exposed to commercial real estate when I moved out to New York City after I graduated from college. And I became a real estate agent. And so I like the idea of getting involved in commercial real estate. I was brokering leases for retail space and offices. And um, I did that for about a year. And I was like, I need to be owning real estate, not brokering it. But I can't afford these buildings that are tens of millions of dollars. So I ended up moving from, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I moved out to New York City for a year after college. And then I moved out to Charleston, South Carolina. I lived there for about five years. And that's when I first started investing. So in 2009, I bought my first house. And um it was, you know, I, I bought the cheapest house on the entire MLS. And I thought you had to go and stockpile a bunch of cash, your own cash, in order to then go and buy those commercial assets. And so I was pretty heavy in uh, single family for, I don't know, three, four years. And at the end of 2012, I bought my first apartment building. So I bought a, an eight unit building. I had ended up getting engaged to my girlfriend, who's also a Clevelander, and moved back to Cleveland. And, um, so 2000, at the end of 2012, I started investing in Cleveland. And I found this little dumpy eight-unit apartment building in a C-class area that uh, was bank-owned, and I bought it for super cheap, put a little bit of money into it, and it yielded a 33% cap rate for me. And, wow. Uh, if I turned around and flipped it, I could make a, big, a bunch of money. If I didn't, I could let it just cash flow, and I was in a pretty good position. So I liked the idea of the scale. Of, of apartment buildings. And um, I still didn't have a lot of my own cash. So I just kept on trading up and trading up and getting into bigger and bigger and bigger apartment buildings. And uh, I had some business partners and that kind of went south. We picked up about 140 units over the course of three, four years. And um, that ended up going south. And so in 2015, I was kind of on my own again. And, um, but I had a lot of insight. I had a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, a lot of connections, a lot of resources, not a lot of my own money, but you know, made a couple of bucks. And um, I was able to go out and start raising private money and start syndicating these deals. And send. so that, that weight off my shoulders from that partnership is what allowed me to then have the meteoric rise you had mentioned over the past five years. So today I'm at a little over 3,900 units, about $330 million of uh, portfolio value. 
But the cool thing is exactly what you said, Brad, is that you're buying at a discount, right? You're creating appreciation. You're buying for cash flow. You're not speculating on any of this stuff. And so because we followed that business model, we're only into our portfolio for around $210 million as our cost basis. And it's worth about 330. So there's a lot of value that we've been able to create because we bought, we found even in the, as the market's been uh, peaking, we've been able to buy with sound principles at deep discounts, off market, direct to seller, create appreciation instead of speculating on it, all those kinds of things. So So I think that there's this idea that, well, people that own single family properties, they have more life problems. They go through divorces. They they have these kinds of issues to where they have to sell the property. Where maybe, I mean, certainly on the financial pressure side of single family, people go through divorces that they run out of money, they're pre-foreclosure, all these things. They have a bad tenant if they're a landlord and it forces them to need to sell, where maybe that doesn't happen as much in the multifamily world. I mean, can you speak on that? But it does, right? We all build this up to be more complex and more convoluted than it really is, right? And the same way that I found deals in the single family realm is how I find deals in the multifamily. I mean, you talk about the the four Ds of uh, death, disease, divorce, and disaster. Like that creates a lot of motivated sellers. And so just like people pass away and own single family houses, people pass away and they own apartment buildings, right? Mm -hmm. Just like people have to liquidate their house before they can finalize their divorce, they have to liquidate their other assets sometimes. Same thing with, you know, Panama City got crushed with a hurricane a year, year and a half ago. And so disaster comes through and strikes. They take their insurance proceeds. I don't need this apartment building. I just got paid out with non-taxable insurance proceeds. Let me walk, you know? So, you know, you, you take a look at things like that and that same direct mail, right? We used to do direct mail all the time with single family. I have a mailbox just like single family owners have a mailbox, right? Mm-hmm. So you can send me direct mail. I have a phone just like everybody else has a phone. So you can dial for dollars. You can call for rent by owners. You can call for sale by owners. You can drive for dollars and look for not houses with tall grass and boarded up windows, but buildings with tall grass and and boarded up windows. And so tax delinquencies, there's a good one. Just Google search apartment buildings, Atlanta, Georgia, right? And look for apartment buildings that have bad Google reviews. They have bad Google reviews. That means the tenants probably aren't happy. Management's slipping. If the tenants aren't happy, they're probably moving out. There's probably a lot of turnover, which means they probably don't have the finances to then turn over some of those units. So if the property gets physically distressed, managerially distressed, that's a, a situation where you might be able to go in and find motivated sellers. So it's um, it's just, you know, I don't really buy through many brokers unless you're one of the top buyers in town. That's really the only time that you'll get deals like off market from brokers. And in Georgia, actually, I am one of the biggest buyers. So I do get some of that. But in all the other markets, it's typically word of mouth. It's a lot of social media, right? Like how we got connected. And, um, you know, I do a little bit of coaching and tell people like, hey, here's how you go out and find deals. And then they go out and find them, but they need somebody to help raise money for it or sponsor the loan on it or hold their hand during it. And so I do a lot of joint venture partnerships with with people as well. So that's how I get all my deals, man. That's super cool. So Let's say that somebody calls you today and they say, hey, I've got this 150 unit apartment building. It looks like something that you're interested in. So what does the due diligence process look like at that? Yeah. So um, typically there's, we'll go in and we'll actually make an offer. I don't look, I don't actually look at any of my properties until I have the terms outlined and agreed upon with the seller. I don't want to waste my time. I see a lot of people who go out and they're spending time and money and resources on due diligence. And then they're not even at terms, right? And then they can't come to terms with the seller. And so I learned this in, in single family, actually. I just started making offers to people. And if we can come together on the terms, then I'd start dedicating resources to it. So once we have the letter of intent signed and the basic terms outlined, 
we hand it off to the attorneys. The attorneys typically take at least a week to three weeks to iron out a commercial real estate contract. So while they're doing that, before earnest money goes up, I'm going out and I'm trying to hammer out as much due diligence as possible. So we've already outlined, you know, we've, we've taken a look at Google Street View already before we, we did the LOI. And we made sure that this is the kind of area that we want to be in. We jump on different websites and look at, you know, safety ratings, school ratings, all those kinds of the crime ratings uh, to make sure it's more of a nicer type area. We've either driven by if it's in our own backyard, but we don't really go and inspect it. Or if it's in another area, we know somebody, we'll ask them how that area is. The Google Street View will give you a good indication. If there's a bunch of working age males in the middle of the day not working, then you're going to understand that that's probably not the kind of area that you want to buy in. It's probably more of a C or D class area. Mm-hmm. We're looking at how the neighbors are keeping up their properties and how the grass is cut in the neighborhood and what kind of other facilities are around. So we do all that leading up to it. We know what the rents are, stabilized rents, and we'll project and assume that there's X number of dollars that needs to go into renovating every single unit. So we've already done all that. Then once we have the LOI signed, we go through and we'll say, hey, I want to get into as many units as possible and I need all the financial due diligence. So now we're cross-referencing leases with rent rolls, with collection reports, profit and loss statements, tax returns, and we're hammering out all the financial due diligence during that process. And then we're trying to get into as many units, at least see the common areas, at least see all the vacants, all the amenities. And we're doing all that before we even have a contract on the property. Because if all that stuff's messed up or if something's not congruent, I don't want to go put up, like you're talking 150 units. That's probably a $5 million deal. You're probably putting up 50 to $100,000 of earnest money. I don't want that tied up you know, if I know I'm not going to move forward with the deal. So we're trying to knock out as much as possible, but the seller appreciates it because, you know, we're not wasting their time and we're getting things done, moving along the process faster. We appreciate it because we don't have to put up a bunch of hard money or earnest money and risk that. Or I just don't like putting up money if if I'm not a hundred percent sure we're going to move forward with something. So, you know, we're going through that whole process. And then once we have a pretty good indication, then we put up the earnest money and then we get into every single unit. And uh, we're bringing every single unit, every single one. We always walk every single unit. You know what happens when you don't? And the seller says, Hey, Brad, you know, no, this is, this unit's indicative of all the other units. So you just need to see this one. Let me show you the best one and the worst one. And they both look exactly the same. Right. And then you end up (laughs) buying the property and guess what happened? You find out that, you know, Buyers are liars and sellers are worse. So we, um, no, we, we walk every single unit. And the reason is because we got burned on it multiple times in the past. So yeah, now I heard one guy say, well, you know, what you do is you put in your contract that, you know, there's XYZ unit and that all the other units are indicative of this unit. And then if they're not, then you send the seller a bill after you close. I was thinking, how in the world are you going to collect on that? Like that's how do you like enforce the it, first right? idea I've ever heard. You can, right? It's a legal agreement. And so, uh-huh. you, but you have to go lawyer up. You're going to spend money on attorneys. You're going to spend right. time going to court. And at the end of the day, I'm more of a velocity guy, right? Like I would rather take the punches and roll with it, move forward and just make sure that all that stuff is taken care of on the front end. So that way we can just get this deal to the finish line, get it renovated, turn over the units. And I don't want to have something else hanging over my head. Right. Especially a lawsuit, right? I just don't need that. So for me, I mean, we still have things like that in our contract, but I don't like surprises, man. You know, yeah. I've had, had too many surprises. I just that. think that's super cool that you get in every single unit and walk it. I mean, it, I know that has to take a lot of time, but I mean, then you know what you have. 
Yeah. So we, how- we have a team that, that rocks through all of it. So we do like a one-page report on mm-hmm. every single unit. And we take wow. pictures while we go through, and then we upload all of it into like a Google Drive folder. And that way, if we have contractors, if we need to get bids on something, they don't have to go to the property a whole bunch of times. We right. Just- just give them the access to the Google Drive and they can go and see, oh, here's what it says, the notes on this unit 101. And it says that the kitchen needs to be redone. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the pictures. It, it does. It's in rough shape, you know? So yeah, we, we walk every single unit, man. So do you find in the due diligence process that the deal often falls apart or do you know pretty well before you go to contract what you need to know and it sticks? We're usually in at a pretty deep basis. Like I took the same formula from single family into multifamily. I need to be all in for 65% of the after repair value. Okay. So if I'm all in, and it's very, like you can figure out what the after repair value is very quickly. Cause it's not like, what did the house down the street sell for? What do I think my house is going to sell for? It's all based on income and expenses. And what is the net operating income? And then a multiple of that. So it's very predictable what a property's worth before I ever even buy it. And I can go in and I can just kind of reverse engineer the numbers and come up with, hey, if I need, if it's worth 10 million, I need to be all in for six and a half and we need $2 million worth of work. That's a fixed number, right? You can't play with the numbers on the renovation. Like that's, uh, it's, you skip on that and you're not getting it forward, you know, moving the needle forward at all. So I need to be able to buy it for four and a half million dollars. And we're typically going in at 4 million. Right. And um, there's usually a little bit of room to play with. Maybe I don't need $2 million. I projected $2 million of renovations, but we only need one and a half million because, you know, a quarter of the units are already renovated or the amenities are, are good to go or the new roofs were just put on. I'm not scaling back because I think I can get away with scaling back. I'm only scaling back the renovation budget if, you know, once we go in through, we're like, hey, I mean, they, they already have luxury vinyl tile in every single unit, they already have updated cabinets in every single unit. I assume that they didn't. So I had that budgeted in, but now that it's already done, we can just scale back that budget that way. That's the only way that we scale back budgets. So yeah, man, I mean, that's kind of what that process looks like. So $10 million ARV on this unit, this complex, and you're buying it at four and a half and you you assume you're going to have to spend a couple million bucks to get it to that 10 million. So how does the financing look on something like that? Because like in the single family world, generally, it's like we can get 100% financing if the discount's deep enough. Do you see that in commercial lending? Not, or do you always not unless you have a relationship with some sort of like a debt fund. Somebody you've done a bunch of deals with and you're buying at a super deep discount. You're usually 50 cents on the dollar all in. Then you can get pretty much 95, 97% financing on it. But again, you need to have a really good relationship with some sort of a investment fund in order to do that. With us, we typically can get 80 to 85% loan to cost. So of the six and a half million, we can typically get about 80 to 85% from some sort of a bridge lender. And then we need to go and raise about 20% of the money from private investors. What's interesting about commercial real estate is they expect you to go and syndicate and bring in outside investors. They don't expect Tim Bratz to write the check for that. Some lenders will require you know, the sponsor to contribute some sort of some amount of capital, but most of them don't. And so we go out and we bring in private money. We get the bank financing for 80% of it. We bring in private money for 20% of it. And that's of the total cost. And then what my model is, we turn around, we renovate it. We you know, fill it up with quality tenants. We put good management in place. And then we refinance it in 12 to 24 months. And um, at a 70% LTV loan, so we're able to pay back that bridge loan. We're able to pay back our investors. And then we have just long-term financing in place without any of our own capital or our investor capital in the deal. And uh, if we do that every 24 months, there's a lot of velocity on our investor capital that we can deploy then. 
Yeah, keep turning it. So that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of uh, personal guarantees on loans, so if the bank is expecting you to go and raise money with you know four or five other people to come in with a million bucks in cash or a couple of million bucks in cash, are they certainly they're not wanting personal guarantees on those guys, but are they looking at the investor and saying, okay, we want a personal guarantee on this, or is that yeah, yeah. On the so, commercial so side? Especially really if it's a if it's a um, a distressed property for sure. And usually yeah. every bank always requires that. Bridge lenders almost always require that. Debt funds almost always require that. When you get into non-recourse, that's once it's stabilized, once it's renovated, once it's 90% occupancy and mm-hmm. collections, then you can get into a non-recourse loan where they'll allow you to uh, uh, not have to have a personal guarantee on the property. So on the front end, I'm personally guaranteeing every single loan that I'm signing on. On the back end, I'm able to re- eliminate that liability. And it's a big deal why we want to get it to the refinance as soon as possible. Pay back our lenders, lower interest rate, longer term in place, more cash flow for us and not recourse for Tim, right? Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. So what would be a disqualifier on a property? So I have a friend of mine that has maybe 700 units and he says, Brad, if there's a, a flat roof, I'm not doing the deal. You know, so what disqualifiers do you have, if any? We're more based on area and numbers. And so we just don't get into C and D class areas anymore. Obviously I did early on because I needed to build up my balance sheet in order to qualify for better areas. So early on, you got to buy whatever you can in order to get yourself up to hundred, 200 units. And then that, that gets you a seat at the negotiating table for a 200 unit B class property. Right. And it gets you qualifiable for a loan on a 200 unit B class type property. And then once you own that B class, then you can sell off the C class. So we're going through a lot of that right now. We've been selling off a lot of our C class, C plus type stuff because all I want is the nice stuff now. I want A and B class areas. We don't do luxury unless we can buy it at a deep discount, but that's very hard to find. Uh, Maybe that's popping up in the next 12, 24 months. We'll see as a lot of those, usually in a downturn or when economic uncertainty occurs, a lot of those luxury renters move into more of like an A or B class workforce type housing. And so we're keeping an eye open for some of that stuff. Uh, we're actually looking at one deal right now that's more luxury, but it's um, we're buying at a low enough basis where I don't have to worry about that. So we got that going on. And then uh, we just don't get into C and D class stuff because it's so management intensive. It's so much work. There's so much turnover on paper. It looks good. But at the end of the day, B class or workforce type tenants stay in your property longer. You'll realize the largest expense in owning rental property is turnover. And so the longer you or the longer your tenants stay, the higher your returns are going to be. And so on paper, the C-class stuff looks good and pro forma. But if you look at the actual numbers and what the real returns look like, B-class is the way to go. So does a D-class or D-minus class complex ever make sense? I mean, I'm sure um, that you, you've bought something and you're thinking, oh my God, like this was going to be so amazing. And, and now we've got uh, gang wars outside. Yeah, I mean... Depends on where you're at. Depends on what you're willing to deal with, right? Like I've made some of my best returns and my worst returns in D-class properties. Interesting. You know? Buying at such a low basis, if you manage it well and you know what you're doing and you have good operations in place and you screen your tenants, you can get away with like, I mean, there's still going to be headaches, but you can, if you, you're going to get it for a steal of a price point. And so if you can do that, you can make good money in D-class. The other thing that I see and something that we still kind of do is we wholesale or we'll flip like a C-class building. So I have a team up here in Cleveland that we come across maybe something C-class. It's 85 units. It's not something we want to hold long-term, but we're buying it super cheap, $15,000 a door, put another five, 10 grand a door in. We could sell it all day for $40,000 a door. We'll do that. 
You know, if it's a cash generator, like a quicker type deal, maybe we'll buy something more C-class. D-class, I just, I just don't need to deal with it anymore. So I just don't. Yeah. And that makes sense. That makes sense. So what comes to mind is, is being like the best deal that you think you've done so far? Um, I know that's a tough one because you've done a lot. You know, I mean, here's the thing. Everybody wants these grand slam deals. And what they need to understand is you don't get grand slams without having a lot of at-bats, right? Like, so you have to go out and hit some base hits, hit some doubles, hit some, hit some triples. And then eventually, unless you're in the world, unless you're out there doing deals, you don't come across the grand slams. They just don't come across your plate if you're not already involved in doing a bunch of base hits. So I do a lot of base hits. I do a lot of doubles. And I think if you build your portfolio, all of a sudden a home run or a grand slam comes across and you average a, between a double or triple over the tight, your lifespan, you're doing pretty damn well, right? And so for me, you know, we came across a deal. It might look like we got lucky. Found some land, building 60 units down in outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And while we're building and applying for permits and go through that whole process, and we start doing the, the land development and everything, a local hospital comes up to us and they said, hey, we desperately need housing for our traveling nurses and doctors. Can we sign a, a lease with you and we'll pay you double market rate rent uh, if you'll do that? So we have 60 units and because of the need for housing in this particular town, they were like, we were going to rent it for 12, 1250 a month per unit. It would have been a great deal, a solid double at least. Yeah. Now they're coming in, they're paying us $2,400 per unit. We have a little bit, we have to furnish every unit. It's only a couple hundred thousand dollars. And we have to pay for all the utilities, which is about, I don't know, hundred bucks, 150 bucks per unit per month. But we're getting an extra $1,200 in rent from these tenants. And so we'll average an extra, that's a cash flow straight to the bottom line, right? Extra thousand dollars per unit per month. $60,000 of additional cash flow every single month over 12 months at $720,000 of additional cash flow. It was already going to cash flow about, uh, I don't know, uh, 150 grand. So now we have $900,000 of additional cash flow on this deal. And we're on a 60 unit. That's a small deal, right? Like typically I wouldn't even do a 60 unit deal like today. And so that's something that just came across our desk. And we got lucky, right? But unless you're swinging the bat, unless you're doing deals, that just doesn't happen. 100%, 100%. What do you think is the most misunderstood part about multifamily? The complexity of it. I think a lot of people build up these stories in their head of like, I didn't go to an Ivy League school and major in finance or real estate. Or I, you know, I don't have these commercial initials behind my name, CCIM or whatever, because I took some classes. Uh, or my great-great-granddaddy didn't own a bunch of commercial real estate, so I can't own a commercial real estate. I think that's a, a limiting belief that a lot of people have, or it's too complex, or I have to start in single family first. But what I can tell you is there's definitely nuances. There's definitely differences between sure. single family and multifamily, but it's not as much as what we all build up in our heads. And I can tell you, like, it's just most of it's verbiage. You know, return on investment is a cap rate it's all, or an unleveraged yield. It's all the exact same thing. After repair value is stabilized value in commercial real estate. It's the exact same thing. You're talking about, I don't know, financing or, or uh, equity investors. Those are private money lenders. It's the exact same thing, right? It just sounds more complex. It sounds more complicated. And uh, the verbiage is what I think a lot of people get scared away by because they haven't heard that before. And, um, and there's people who talk and use big words. And it takes a blue collar kid like me from Cleveland, Ohio. And it's like, I don't know if I deserve to sit in the same room as them. And then you realize they are no better than any one right. of us. 
they just been it longer, right? Or maybe they did get educated. That doesn't mean that I don't deserve a seat at that table. And a lot of those guys are trying to do business with me now because we're rocking and rolling. I actually think I have an advantage because I simplify it to a third grade level. And that's why I've had as much of a rise in real estate, I think, over the past five years is because I can take complex things and make it simple, you know, in layman's terms so that a kid like me can understand it. it means everybody can understand it. And that way it makes it easier to find deals. It makes it easier to raise money makes it easier to operate, right? And those three things are all that matters in owning and operating real estate. Got it. What do you feel the, the end game is for you? Um, I like the finance side of things. I like the money side. Um, I think when you control the money, you have a lot of different options. You can invest in businesses, you can invest in real estate, you can invest in uh, a lot of different stuff. And so for me, I like the idea of directing the money. We understand the operations and I'll always have a, some sort of input in the operations or at least my COO will. But for me, I really like the money raising side. So, you know, my short-term goal is to have a billion dollar portfolio over the next 24 months. We're pretty confident we'll get there. We're very confident we'll get there. You know, obviously COVID-19 has kind of created some uncertainty, but we've got a lot of good stuff in the pipeline over the past 30 days, 45 days, like everything's kind of turned around and who knows, will it ride out? Will it not? I mean, bridge financing is kind of gone, but we've found many other different creative financing strategies and some other stuff. So we're still doing that. I want to build up a billion dollar portfolio, but really over the next 10 years, I want a billion dollar fund. And I really think we can do it in the next like five years. We had a lot of people reaching out to us with big money. And I know if, if we got a hundred million bucks, you could take that and then go to like institutional lenders, hedge funds, you know, um, like college, what's it called when they um, raise all the money anyways, or, or pension funds, you know, stuff like that, where then they'll lend money to you. And then you can kind of arbitrage capital and you can get up to a, a half a billion or a billion dollars like relatively quickly if you can deploy the money. So I think that's really the game is getting to that, the fund side of things, get a billion dollar fund and we'll do both debt and equity. The debt creates cash flow right now. The equity creates wealth over time. And I think we can balance that out. So who knows? I like that. The other thing is, I don't know, I might make hundred million bucks over the next 24 months and say, you know, I really like the education side. You know, I love the education side, really. If, if they pay teachers better, I would be a teacher, right? <laughs> I think it's one of the most noble professions out there. For and sure. um, I love teachers. I love being, my mom was a teacher. And um, if I could do that, I absolutely would. Uh, I think there's different ways to be a teacher though. I think you can, you right. can teach on finance and wealth and achievement. And uh, so I got some stuff going on on that side, not just like teaching people how to invest in real estate, but I have mastermind group and um, I'm working on some children's achievement type books as well, which uh, should be coming out actually in the next month here. So I'm, I'm really pumped up about that. And who knows, maybe I'll do something there. For those that are interested in joining with you in your mentorship or people that are looking to deploy capital and deals, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, I appreciate that. That's not why I came on, but I appreciate you making that yeah. offer. Uh, no, I mean, find me on social media. I'm really active on Facebook. I'm really active on Instagram. I'm active on LinkedIn. I get a lot of spam on LinkedIn though. So send, if you want to send me a message, send it through Facebook or Instagram. And then, uh, you know, my website's legacywealthholdings.com. And I got to put out a ton of free content there. I put out a ton of free content and information and education on, uh, on social media. So go there. And then if you have interest in connecting and, uh, and like some sort of formal education, just reach out to me and uh, let's see what we can, what we can work out. But yeah, I'm, I'm always, you know, looking for deals, looking for money, uh, helping people out, seeing what, if there's ways that we can build wealth together, truly believe, you know, money. I think it's, I think it's ubiquitous. I think it's everywhere. I think it's like sunshine and, you know, Brad, you getting sunshine doesn't take any sunshine away from me, right? So Absolutely. as well, get some sunshine together. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely believe that. Appreciate you being on, man. This was this was amazing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate all the value and all the content that you're putting out there. So keep doing what you're doing, man. <laughs>